Well, it's good seeing all of you guys. On this beautiful spring day, humid day. Praise the Lord for a little break from the cold. Before we get into the Word, let me pray for us. And let's ask the Lord to to really stir our hearts and our affections. This is a very difficult text, and I think there's so much for us to learn. So let's ask the Lord to open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for your goodness. God, I am so grateful that you are sovereign and that you are in control, that you are merciful and gracious, that you are compassionate, that you are slow to anger, you're holy and just, and you rightfully punish sin. And Lord, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, children under wrath, you initiated our salvation by sending your Son to die for us. As you opened up our eyes, as you allowed us to hear your word, as you allowed us to understand it and respond to it. And Lord, I pray that as we proclaim your word today, as we look at who you are, Lord Jesus, the great I am, can you open up our eyes, open up our ears, open up our hearts? Lord, you know each and every one in this room. You, you know where we're coming from. You know what we are thinking, how we're feeling. You know the challenges and the obstacles that we're facing in life. And you even know the challenges and obstacles we are going to face in life. And Lord, I pray, can you minister to our hearts? Can you help us to walk out of here in awe of you? Can you help us to abide in your word as we read it and we cling to it and we believe it and we rest in it? And may we have life in you. So come, Lord, meet us where we are and speak. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to John. Uh, we are wrapping up John chapter 8, so we're going to uh, start off in, in this morning in verse 42. Now, in the Gospel of John, remember, John is trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And the way he does it is by showing us how, first of all, Jesus revealed his glory. And second of all, later on in the Gospel of John, he's going to show us how Jesus received glory from the Father. And his ultimate purpose and the reason why he wrote the gospel of John is to invite us, his readers, to believe so that we may have life in his name. Now, if you think about the purpose of the book, the purpose of the gospel of John is to invite us in to believe in his name. So if that's the purpose, a very common theme that we've seen so far throughout the gospel of John is that of faith. And so, so far throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen many people believe in Jesus. However, we've also noticed that not everyone who believes are true disciples. We saw in the Gospel of John in John chapter 2 that many believed in him because of all the miracles they saw. However, Jesus would not entrust himself to them because they had, in a sense, untrustworthy faith. They didn't really trust him. They believed because they saw miracles and that was about it. 
We saw even in John chapter 6 that many were amazed at Jesus. They were captivated by his teachings and said they believed him. However, the second his teachings confronted them and their religious bias, they were unable to follow him because they believed his teachings were harsh and difficult to accept. And so the natural question that we ask ourselves, we see people believe in Jesus and yet they have untrustworthy faith. The question is, okay, then what's the difference between real faith and false faith? What's the difference between genuine, being a genuine disciple and an unreliable disciple? And so last week, Jesus kind of answered the question, and we learned that if you abide in his word, you are a true disciple. In other words, what it means is when we continue, when we believe, when we read, and when we cling in his word, it is a mark of true faith and genuine discipleship. And with that, as we abide in his word comes glorious promises. The promise that we get is that we get to experience truth and we get to be set free. And as Jesus was having this conversation last week with the Jews, the Jews were unable to believe in him. And because of the statement that Jesus made, they said to themselves, we are not slaves to anyone. We are children of Abraham, which means we belong to God. We're not a slave to anything. And what Jesus was doing, really, in a sense, he was dismembering this false assurance, this very thing, this lineage, this genealogy that they put their hope in. And naturally, the Jews did not appreciate it. But what was really at the heart of the issue is that the reason why they saw no need to abide in Jesus and his word, because really they saw no need for Jesus to deliver them. And so last week, as he kind of talked about what a genuine disciple, what true faith looks like, now as Jesus is continuing having this conversation with the Jews and coming to an end, what Jesus really does is he confronts their unbelief and he gives us the reasons for their unbelief. And at the very heart, these people believed a lie, rejecting the way, the truth, and the life that stood in front of them. So let's look at this conversation that Jesus is wrapping up with these Jews. Let's see the reason for their unbelief, and then let's look at who Jesus truly is. Let's look at verse 42. It says this, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I did not come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. Now, in the previous verse, in verse 41, the Jews just claimed that God was their father. Now, in a sense, what they were claiming, in a sense, was true. Because throughout the Old Testament, Israel was considered God's firstborn son. And God was the father of Israel. And since they are a descendant of Abraham, part of the nation of Israel, naturally they are children of Abraham and children of God. And when Jesus is looking to them, and he is in a sense saying, hey, God is not your father, he is not denying the truth of the Old Testament. He is not contradicting the Old Testament, but rather what he is saying is this truth does not apply to you because if God was your father, you would love me. 
you would recognize me because where do I come from? I come from God. He is the one who sent me. But since you do not recognize me, it shows me that you do not even know God. And what we have to understand is in the Old Testament, being a son is more than just genealogy. It's more than just physical descent. But in the Old Testament, in the ancient world, this idea of sonship meant acting in the likeness and conduct of the father. So, so for example, a son would follow in the trade of the father. If your daddy was a baker, you would be a baker. If your daddy was a carpenter, you would be a carpenter. This is why. Why was Jesus a carpenter? Because his earthly father was a carpenter. We even have sayings in our culture, you are just like your dad. The apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. Even though we have these expressions and we don't really fully understand them, in the ancient world, this idea of sonship was more than genealogy, but had everything to do in how you acted and how you behaved and your ultimate values. And what Jesus is saying, he's implying that the reason why Abraham, the reason why God is not your father because you are not acting like them. You're not acting in their likeness. You do not share in their values because if God was your father, you would love me. Because how does God act? God loves his son. God sent his son. Jesus came from God. And then in verse 43, Jesus concludes the reason why they don't understand. Look at verse 43 again. Why, why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. In other words, the reason why they cannot understand what Jesus is saying is not because Jesus is speaking in parables. It's not because Jesus and his communication is unclear. His communication is very clear, but the reason why they cannot understand him is because they cannot hear or listen to his word. Now, that Greek word for hear or listen very strongly implies a sense of obedience. So if you're taking notes, the very reason for unbelief, for their unbelief, is because they are unable to hear and obey his word. This is why they don't understand him. This is why they can't believe him. This is why there's unbelief. It's because they are unable to hear and obey his word. And since Jesus has already said, God is not your father because they do not share in his likeness and in his conduct, the natural question is, okay, then who is their father? Look at verse 44. Now you know why they want to kill Jesus. Verse 44, look at it. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. 
And when he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Again, because sonship has everything to do with likeness, behavior, conduct, and values, Jesus is saying that their father is the devil. Why? Because they want to carry out his desires. Now, Jesus gives us two desires of the devil. The first desire is the devil was a murderer from the very beginning. What was Jesus referring to? the devil being a murderer. More than likely, his reference was to the Garden of Eden. With the fall of Adam and Eve by Satan, the devil successfully tempting them, he robbed Adam of spiritual life, and through him, death was brought to the entire human race. The devil is a murderer. The second desire of the devil is He abandons the truth, for there is no truth in him. Jesus says that when he lies, he speaks his native language because he is a liar and the father of lies. And just like he is a murderer in the Garden of Eden, he's also a liar in the Garden of Eden. Because God told Adam and Eve, you will surely die when you eat this fruit. And what did the devil say? you will not surely die. So either God is the liar or the devil is the liar. And what does the Bible conclude? That God is completely truthful in everything while the devil spontaneously gravitates towards lying since that when he speaks, he lies because lying is his native tongue. So Jesus says, you do not act like God. Rather, you act like the devil in your desires. But then what Jesus draws in verse 45 is an application as he kind of explains the second reason for their unbelief. Look at verse 45. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Now, now, now bear with me here. Here's the complicated part. So let's put on our thinking hats here. Follow the argument of what Jesus is making. Why is God not their father? Because they are not acting like their father. Who are they acting like? The devil who is their father. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is that the children of God will in a sense so love truth that they will believe in Jesus because who is Jesus? He is the truth. He is the Son of God. So what would the children of God do? They will love truth because they're acting like their Father, who is truth, and they would love the Son, who is truth. But on the other hand, here's the second reason for their unbelief, if you're taking notes, is this, that the children of the devil will be so characterized by lies that they are unable to accept truth because it is truth. Let me say it again, unpack it a little bit. The children of the devil will be so characterized by lies that they are unable to accept truth because it is truth. Again, think about the argument of what Jesus is making. Who is the devil? 
He is a murderer. He is a liar. He's the father of lies. And then when he speaks, he speaks his native tongue, and it's called lying. So in other words, he's telling these Jews that the devil is your father, and you're so characterized by his native tongue that the only thing that can come out of your mouth is lies, and you are unable to accept truth, not because you can't understand it, but because it is truth. It is uncharacteristic for you to accept it because your native tongue is that of lying. You following me? Okay. Now let's talk about us in this. Jesus gives basically two options. You're either a child of God that so loves the truth acting in a manner of God that you believe in Jesus or you're a child of the devil that are so characterized by lies that you are unable to accept truth because it is truth. There's only two options. Now, many of us, we don't like to think in two options. We like to think that there must be a neutral option. We could neither be children of God nor children of the devil. That maybe there is a neutral option. Or some of us would like to think, wow, we don't start off as children of the devil, but rather we start off as children of God, and then because of our rebellion and sin, then we start gravitating towards children of the devil. But this is not what the Bible teaches. The reality is we do not start off as children of God, but rather we start off as children of the devil. Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 3, if you want to write down this reference just so that you can see I don't make up stuff. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ruler of the air and the spirit now working in the disobedient. And then he includes himself. He says, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. So what's Paul saying? Like we were dead in our sins. We were children under wrath. Why? Because we were children of the devil. So Jesus explains the reason for unbelief. Why are the Jews unbelieving? Because they are unable to hear and obey his word. Because they are children of the devil. And they're so characterized by lies that they cannot accept truth because it is truth. Awful news. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Which now brings up a natural question. And the natural question is, if we are all were children of the devil, unable to hear and understand and obey the word, unable to accept truth because it is truth, then how can there be genuine disciples who've moved from being a child of the devil to now a child of God? Something must have happened. 
Now, in our text here, I don't think John explains to us in chapter 8, he's not talking about faith, but rather he's talking about unbelief. But if we kind of zoom out and look at the whole gospel, John has already dedicated an entire chapter on faith. And he shows us in chapter 6 this explanation of chapter 8. So if we are... Children of the devil, how do we become children of God if we're unable to hear the truth and accept truth? He tells us in John 6.44, For the Father draws them. 6.37, For the Father gives them to the Son. 6.45, They are taught by God. 6.70, They are chosen by Jesus. In other words, what he's doing, what John is doing, the combination of these themes in John chapter 6, where we really see God's divine initiative, in John chapter 8, man's unbelief, two things it does. First of all, it strips us of any grounds of boasting from those who do believe. So if you're believing, it's not because you're that awesome. It's because he was that great and initiated that in your life. But then also for those who are in their unbelief, there is a dire warning. You are not neutral in this. You are a child of the devil, breathing out murderous threats. Lies is coming out of your mouth. And the only thing that is waiting for you is destruction and death. And pay attention to that. Turn from it. Do not continue in it. And this is what he's telling these Jews. And this is awful news. And yet in this awful news, Jesus now starts to turn it to himself as he displays his holy character. Look how he displays his holy character in verse 46. He he says this, Who among you can convict me of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? In other words, what Jesus is saying, Jesus, when, when, when he's saying, who among you can convict me of sin, he's not in a sense saying, hey, do you think I'm guilty of sin? Of course the people think he's guilty of sin. They think Jesus is guilty of sin because he's broken the Sabbath and he's blaspheming. And so when Jesus is saying, who can convict me of sin, he's not saying in a sense, you know what, I have sinned in such a sly way that there's no way you're going to able to find out that I actually sinned. But rather what he is saying with a full assurance and a full conviction is, you cannot convict me of sin because I have never sinned. And by him saying that, who can convict me of sin? You cannot find me guilty of sin because I've never sinned. He is displaying his perfect, holy character. And if the best of theological minds find it impossible to convict Jesus of sin, they should start to question now themselves. This is why he says in verse 47, the one who's from God listens to God's word. This is why you don't listen because you are not from God. So if you can't convict me of sin because there is no sin, why are you continuing to question me? You should start to, to question yourself. Perhaps this guy is telling the truth. Perhaps he is why they do not believe in him. And then he just restates these truths 
You cannot hear me. You cannot listen to me because you cannot hear the truth. You cannot accept the truth. And since the best theological minds could not trap him, they now result to personal abuse. Look at, look at the personal abuse towards Jesus. Verse 48 says this, the Jews responded to him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I do not have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it and judges. Truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And so what Jesus does is he denies he's demon-possessed. On what basis? Because he's not acting like a demon. He's not acting like the father of all demons, breathing out murderous threats and lying. But who's he acting like? He's acting like God. Because he is walking in obedience, submitting to God. His whole life revolves around honoring God for the glory of God. And then he kind of redirects their conversation to the central purpose of his mission. And again, he says, if anyone keeps my word, in other words, if you cling to it, believe in it, obey it, and live by it. What did he say in verse 51? You will never see death. And so now is the second promise we see abiding in this word. Last week, what's the first promise when we abide in this word? We will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But now the second promise is you will never see death. So if you're, you're taking notes here, here's the second promise of us abiding in his word, putting our faith in him. He says you will have life. You will have Life, in a sense, we will have the assurance of life that not even physical death can extinguish. An eternal life that not even the power of death has over it. A life that is destined for the resurrection. And for these Jews, these statements were utterly preposterous. Look, look at verse 32, how they respond. Then the Jews said, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. You say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died, and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? Think about this question. Who do you claim to be? Think about it. It's just full of irony. Because they're missing the central point that Jesus is making. Jesus is not claiming anything about himself. He's not making much of himself, but who is he making much of? God. His very life depends on honoring God and bringing glory to God. And now they're saying, they're missing the point and say, who do you think you are? And the irony is he's not doing it. And the irony is, yeah, he's greater than Abraham. Yeah, he's greater than the prophets. And therefore, Jesus responds that he doesn't seek his own glory. Look at verse 54. He says, if I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. In other words, what Jesus is doing, he's just persisting. Where does he come from? He comes from the Father. What is he doing? He was sent by the Father. He only speaks what he heard the Father say. He only does what the Father tells him to do. He's not in it for his own glory, but what's his very purpose? To honor God and bring glory to God. And then in verse 56, one of the main verses, he made this statement about Abraham. He says, Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Jesus. He saw it and was glad. I think this verse is very significant because here's why this is significant. This reminds us that there's only one way of salvation, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. From Abraham to the prophets, from the moment that Jesus spoke these words, and even for us today, the way of salvation has been and always be through Jesus. What did Abraham do? Abraham believed in God because he believed that God somehow from his offspring will provide a son where all nations will be blessed, that somehow a deliverer, a Messiah would come and set God's people free. And what did Abraham do? He believed. He trusted and this Messiah. Did he fully understand the Messiah? No, but he certainly trusted. And Jesus tells us, the text tells us that Abraham saw it and he was glad. And even though scholars do not agree what exactly Abraham saw, I do think we can with certainty point to the fulfilled promise of God that were made to Abraham. Think about it. What did God promise Abraham? God promised him a son and this son would be a picture of a greater son of israel that was yet to come and what did abraham do he believed god because he saw god keeping his promise and the miraculous birth of his son and he saw god keeping this promise of a son and if he's kept his promise and he's keeping his promise he will certainly keep his promise in the future to provide a son that would deliver all God's people and that all the nations will be blessed through Abraham and that son that God provided where all the nations were blessed through Abraham was who? Jesus. Abraham saw he rejoiced and he was glad. Unfortunately, the Jews scoffed at this idea as they continued in their unbelief. Look at verse 57. We're almost done. The Jews replied, You aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. And so in their minds, they're thinking there's no way that Jesus was before Abraham because he's not even 50. They were blind to the promise of God. They were blind to the one who stood in front of them. This man 
was the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. And I just love Jesus' statement. Look at his statement again. He says in in verse 58, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, in a sense, it would be simpler for Jesus to say, Before Abraham was, I was. But he doesn't. He says, Before Abraham was, I am. Which means that I am statement carries with it a lot of significance and a lot of weight. Because who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush as I am? God. So what is Jesus doing in a sense saying before Abraham was I am? He is invoking the covenant name of God. The name that God revealed himself to Moses I am. Now Jesus is implying that title to himself. So if you're taking notes this is what Jesus is declaring. Jesus was declaring himself to be the eternal self-existent self-sufficient covenant keeping God. The God who revealed himself to Moses. The God who revealed himself to the people of God. He is the great I am. The eternal one. The self-existent one. In other words, no one created him. The self-sufficient one. He is not dependent on anything or anyone. And he is the covenant-keeping God. Now, their response should have been that of worship. But instead, how did they respond? They wanted to kill him. Why? Because they are children of the devil. Because the devil's desire is murder. The devil's language is lies. But they were unable to touch him because his time has not yet come. And even though they were unable to harm him, that did not mean their hatred towards him started to grow. So so let's wrap it up here and talk a little bit about application here. One of the things we have to understand is that their response towards Jesus and their hatred towards Jesus did not change who Jesus is and did not change in why he came. He is the eternal God. The gracious, compassionate, merciful, loving, holy, and just God. He is the fulfillment of every promise in Scripture. He is the hope of all of the world. And He came to live a life we could not live so that He could die in our place for our sins, taking on our penalty so that he can satisfy God's wrath that was geared towards us so that we could be reconciled to God. And what John is doing, what Jesus is doing in this text, he is inviting people to believe in him. He's inviting people to abide in his word so that you will never see death. So here's the application. Here's my fear for us. Anytime we read the Bible, no one wants to relate to the Pharisees or to the Jews. But here's the reality. That's who we are. 
they're not the only ones who are children of the devil. Us, apart from Christ, are children of the devil as well. Our desires is to kill and murder. Our native tongue is lying. Why do you think lying comes so easy? Because we are children of the devil. And, and what I don't want you to do is, I don't want you to be like these Jews who claim to be children of God, but in reality you are children of the devil. I don't want you to be like these Jews who claim to follow God, yet God stands in front of them and they did not recognize him. God spoke to them and they could not hear his voice or recognize his voice. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, Neil, if I am a child of the devil, unable to hear God's word and obey God's word, if I am a child of the devil, unable to accept truth because it is truth, then what can I do? Well, notice a common pattern for these Jews. What did they not do once? They never humbled themselves. They kept on arguing. Who do you think you are? You're, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. How dare you say that we are children of the devil? And in a sense, what was happening is they were prideful. They were boastful. Like, this guy knows nothing. We are sons of Abraham. We belong to God. But the reality is they were not. And so I'm talking to you, if, if you don't believe in Jesus... You are not neutral in this. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. And if you're a child of the devil, the reality is what I'm saying to you, you cannot hear it, you cannot obey it, no matter how hard you try. You cannot accept it because it is truth. You're like, well, what am I supposed to do? Humble yourself before the Lord. Say, Lord, I, I know I can't hear this. I can't understand this. I can't obey this. I can't accept this. I need you to open up my eyes, my ears, and my heart. Recognize where I'm from. I need you to show up. I need you to move so that I can respond, so that I can hear, so that I can believe, because without you, I cannot do a thing. See, salvation doesn't come to the proud. It comes to the humble. And what does the Bible say? When you humble yourself before God, what does he do? He'll deliver you. He will hear you. He will respond to you. So what I don't want some of you to do is walk out of here like these Jews with a false sense of assurance, thinking you belong to God, but you don't. So how do you investigate that? How do you look at that? Are you, in, are you abiding in his word? Are you clinging to his word? Are you resting in Christ? Are you looking to him or are you trusting yourself? Those are all indicators. And if not, then humble yourself and turn to him. And see the Lord who promises to do a mighty work, to do a mighty work in you. To take you who are a child of the devil and make you a child of God. Through what Jesus has done on the cross. 
And then for those who are in Christ, who are children of God, may we be a people who continually believe in Jesus. May we be a people who continually cling to Jesus, recognize His calling, answer it, and follow it. May we serve Him joyfully. May we make Him known to the world who do not understand Him. And may we even in difficult times rest in Him and trust Him and look to him. Let me pray for us, and then we get ready to sit at the table. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. I thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you that you have sent your Son to die in our place, to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can be reconciled to you. God, I am grateful for your divine initiative that opens up our eyes, our ears, our hearts so that we may hear and that we may respond. Lord, you know everyone in this room. You know those who belong to you and those who don't. And Lord, can you open up the eyes of those who don't? Can you help them to see the reality of their condition? And may they see themselves not as neutral, but as an enemy of you. And the only thing that is waiting for them is death and destruction. And may they surrender their life as they cry out for help and humility. And may you save them. And Lord, for, for, for those of us who are in Christ, you know who we are. But even in our troubles of following you, even in our struggles with sin, may our assurance never be on our performance, on what we do or where we're from, but may it be in you and in you alone. As we get ready to sit at the table, like the reason why we sit at the table is Sunday after Sunday. Because we are reminded of the assurance that we have in Jesus Christ. He sets this table before us and he invites those who have believed in him to come and sit, not as guests, not as strangers, but as children, children, sons and daughters of the king. And the reason we get to sit at this table is not because we've done anything, but because what he has done. This is why what's on the table is the bread and the cup that represents his body and his blood. What's not on the table is a list of our performances or pictures of all the good things we've done. It's not there. Because you don't get to sit at the table because of who you are. You get to sit at the table because of what he's done and who he has made you to be. Sons and daughters. And what that does is, for the Christian, it helps reorient our hearts, our minds. Because it's so easy for us to walk out of here and say, you know what, I need to try harder. I need to do better. That's not the gospel message. 
That's not what Christ is proclaiming. It's not about you and you needing to try harder. It's about who he is and what he's done for you. And all you need to do is ask the Lord to help reorient your eyes so you can stop looking at yourself and look to him. But then another thing this table does is that for those who do not believe in Christ, in a sense, they see the benefits we get to enjoy in sitting in the presence of our Lord and Savior, feasting and remembering and looking forward to the great banquet. And what it does to the watching world, it displays the gospel, but it also stirs in their heart of, I want to be a part of that. And you can be. Look to Christ. Surrender your life to Christ. But if you've not yet, please exclude yourself from this table. You're not welcome in this table unless you are in Christ. The only thing that welcomes us here, the only thing that allows us here is because of Jesus Christ. And so as we get ready to distribute these elements, like think about the wonderful benefits that we have in Christ. Ask the Lord to help reorient your heart and your eyes and your life to remove distractions so that you can trust in Him, abide in Him, and cling to Him regardless of your circumstances. So let's go ahead and distribute these elements. I'm just amazed that the eternal, self-existing, self-sufficient, covenant-keeping God who's fully God and fully man gave himself for us, rebellious children of the devil. He died in our place, satisfied God's wrath that should have been rightfully poured out on us. How do you know that you're saved? Because of this God that gave his life for you. That is what your hope is in. That is what your assurance is in. This is why we're eating and drinking. We are reminded of Christ's body that was given for us. Eat it in remembrance of him. Christ's blood that was shed for us, the new covenant that we have in him. Drink it in remembrance of him. Why don't you just take some time and just thank the Lord. Thank the Lord for who he is and what he's done for you. Thank the Lord for all the benefits that you have in him. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. We thank you for the salvation that you've accomplished for us. We thank you for the assurance and for the peace that we have in you. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you'll be with us. Lord, for those who are continuing on in their sin and rebellious ways, can you convict them? For those who are struggling in their sin and feel like giving up, Lord, can you encourage them? Can you strengthen them? Lord, help us to trust in you that you who began a good work in us will finish it. And Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. May we run this race with endurance as we cling to you, as we trust in you, as we believe in you and rest in you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship the worthy Lamb of God?